This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. By 1975, the population of Medellin had tripled since Griselda Blanco's childhood in 1950. The overgrown slum of a city had transformed into a booming metropolis of over a million people. But compared to New York City... It was a bit of a letdown. Griselda had been spending her evenings at local cockfights for months. Ever since she was chased out of New York by the DEA, she didn't mind it, really. What Medellin lacked in culture, it made up for in business opportunities. Tonight, she was here to meet a young man she'd been introduced to by a mutual friend, a small-time thug who wanted to get in on the cocaine business. She saw him approaching... Greasy mop of hair, dark eyes, thin mustache, probably mid-twenties. Nothing special, but he looked eager. The young man told Griselda he'd grown up in Medellin, just like her. He worked mostly as a carjacker, but he aspired to bigger and better things. He had a plan to shake up the cocaine industry permanently. He could make Griselda richer than she'd ever been. She just needed to take a chance on him. Griselda gave him another once-over. She asked his name. The young man smiled, showing off a row of white teeth, and introduced himself as Pablo Escobar. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the ParCast Network. Every Friday we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode of a three-part series on Griselda Blanco, one of the first major cocaine traffickers in Colombia in the 1970s and 80s. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. 
you allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In 1975, things were not looking up for 32-year-old Griselda Blanco. 30 of her associates had just been arrested in the biggest cocaine case in U.S. history. She'd been forced to flee back to Colombia to escape the indictment. And now, for the first time in years, she had to live in the same country as her husband, Alberto. But she wouldn't let the setback slow her down. When the Medellin airport started seizing her drug shipments, she finagled the airport's entire staff onto her payroll. When U.S. Customs started searching her drug mules, she designed an entire line of lingerie with well-hidden pockets for cocaine. If she was banished from the U.S., she could just as easily run the empire from Colombia. Before the DEA bust, Griselda had always been the one running the processing and smuggling side of their billion-dollar operation down in Colombia, while her husband Alberto handled the distribution in New York. She had all her affairs under control, but Alberto, apparently, did not. Griselda couldn't really blame Alberto for the DEA investigation, but she could blame him for zipping back to Colombia and sending her to New York in his stead just days before the indictment came down. That was pretty convenient timing. A suspicious mind might think Alberto had been trying to get Griselda arrested so he could take over the entire operation himself. The only evidence to the contrary was that now that his side of the business had been blown to smithereens, Alberto seemed totally disinterested in doing any work. Griselda knew the business in Colombia. Griselda knew how everything worked. So Griselda would have to salvage what was left of the operation while Alberto moped around Medellin. The drug labs they'd been running in Colombia hadn't been damaged at all by the bust in New York. The issue now was how to get their stockpiles of cocaine into the U.S. Most of their good people were in jail or in hiding, and the few that were left were too scared to go back to New York. If Griselda was going to keep this business running, she needed new blood. So when one of her friends introduced her to a young man named Pablo Escobar, she didn't hesitate to take him under her wing. Pablo was smart charismatic, and a real go-getter. He had been raised in a poor family in Medellin and got started in petty crime at a young age to support his family, just like Griselda had. Griselda was in desperate need of someone like Pablo, someone who was willing to take risks. So she loaned him money for his first cocaine purchase. The pair worked well together for a time. Griselda allowed Pablo to run his own side operation under the umbrella of her larger cartel. He was pulling in a lot of cash, and Griselda got a hefty percentage of it. Best of all, Pablo knew his place and treated Griselda with respect. Until he didn't. Pablo was so good, his operation outgrew Griselda's within a matter of months. He was a more charismatic leader 
and employees trusted Pablo more than they did Griselda. It was certainly in part because Griselda was a woman. Even though she was technically partners with her husband, she didn't hide behind his facade of authority. She was the one running the show, and for better or worse, everyone knew it. Pablo got tired of cutting Griselda into his profits, so he started hiring his own people behind Griselda's back. He began to distance his operation from Griselda's until by 1976, it was its own separate entity. He called it the Medellin Cartel. It was the first major competitor Griselda had ever faced, and she was the one who'd created this monster. Griselda thought she'd be able to control Pablo, just as she'd controlled every other minor competitor she'd been faced with. But Pablo wasn't interested in being bought out for one massive payday. He wanted to be in control. Those were the things Griselda had admired in Pablo. His ambition, his smarts, his creativity. She'd fostered his success like a true godmother. At the very least, he owed her some respect. At first, the pair tried to be amicable toward one another, but they found themselves competing for territory, resources, and employees. If they weren't working together, they were inevitably working against each other. In less than a year, Griselda and Pablo turned from friends to bitter rivals. They severed all diplomatic ties in 1976. What followed was a full-scale war. Unfortunately, not much was ever recorded about the exact circumstances of this feud. Colombia was so used to violence and warring crime lords, it was treated like business as usual. Cartel members were murdered on the streets, innocent bystanders were caught in the crossfire, and public officials were paid to turn a blind eye to it all. Some accounts suggest Pablo and Griselda tried to assassinate each other. There are no hard details on those attempts, but it wouldn't be surprising behavior for these two. At the end of the day, Pablo came out the winner. He was ruthlessly violent, universally feared, and completely uninhibited. Griselda was no shrinking violet herself, but her team was still struggling after the bust in New York. She couldn't match Pablo's level of resources or respect. Within a few months, Pablo finally drove Griselda out of Medellin. She and Alberto fled eight hours southeast to Bogota. Griselda had been forced out of her own hometown by her former protege. This betrayal would color her decisions throughout the rest of 1976. It started with paranoia. Griselda saw traitors everywhere. She refused to hire any new employees afraid they might be spies from the Medellin cartel. She constantly worried about her own safety and the safety of her three children. As her circle of trust grew smaller and smaller, business began to suffer. Griselda had been holding the reins since the operation moved back to Colombia. But with Griselda becoming too paranoid to function, Alberto had to step in and take control. Unfortunately for Alberto, Griselda didn't trust him either. She was still suspicious about his conveniently timed return to Colombia before the DEA indictment came down the previous year. Now it looked like her suspicions were correct. He was trying to take over the business and push her out. 
Alberto's brother, Carlos, had been involved in their operation from the start. This had never been a problem when the brothers were off in New York, leaving Griselda to mind her own side of the business. But three's a crowd, and now that they were all cooped up in Colombia together, Carlos was starting to look like a threat to Griselda's own power. Fueled by paranoia, she was ready to shoot first and ask questions later. Sometime in the year after their return to Colombia, Griselda had Carlos Bravo killed. The circumstances of why, when, and how are unknown, but we do know that Alberto wasn't happy about it. Griselda and Alberto were never a very loving couple in the first place. They lived on entirely separate continents throughout most of the early 70s. It seems to have been more of a business arrangement than a romance. But despite never being particularly close, they were at least good partners who worked well together. That all went out the window when Griselda killed Alberto's brother. It's unclear whether Alberto knew Griselda was behind the murder, but he probably had his suspicions. Griselda was obviously unraveling. Alberto was starting to think she'd gone insane. Forget the damage to their marriage. If she kept killing her own associates, the business would fall apart. And Alberto loved that business way more than he loved Griselda. Divorce was illegal in Colombia, so that wasn't an option. Pushing her out of the business would be difficult, since she was the one with all the contacts. But ducking out and starting his own operation? That he could do. Perhaps with this plan in mind, in late 1976, Alberto stole $1.5 million from their cocaine operation. But if he thought Griselda was just going to roll over and give up, he was fatally mistaken. Up next, we'll explore the startling end of Griselda and Alberto's relationship. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. When Griselda Blanco butted heads with her first husband, Carlos Trujillo, in around 1970, he suddenly died under mysterious circumstances. Six years later, her second husband, Alberto Bravo, tried to steal one and a half million dollars from her, and he actually thought he was going to get away with it. Obviously, Griselda found out about the missing money not long after it was taken in late 1976. She knew there was only one way to take care of a problem like Alberto. Griselda told Alberto to meet her at a nightclub in Bogota. 
she arrived with a pistol tucked in her ostrich skin boot. Alberto came out of the club, trailed by six bodyguards armed with Uzi submachine guns. When Griselda saw the self-satisfied smirk on his face, her rage boiled over. She called him a liar, a cheat, a thief, an idiot. Alberto screamed back. He said she was the craziest woman he'd ever met. He may have been right. She reached into her boot and pulled out her pistol. Alberto and his men raised their Uzis. Alberto got off the first shot, hitting her in the stomach. A split second later, Griselda shot him in the face. Alberto fell to the ground. Griselda grabbed the submachine gun from his lifeless hand and ran for cover with blood seeping out of her stomach. Alberto's six bodyguards opened fire. Griselda ducked and shot carefully, conserving her ammunition until all seven men lay dead on the pavement. Griselda walked away from the scene, injured, but the sole survivor. For the rest of her life, she would alternate between bragging about killing her husband and denying any involvement in it. This kind of shootout would have made a mess of most people. But Griselda came out on the other side even stronger. Their cocaine business was now a one-woman operation. No man would ever hold her down again. From late 1976 to 1977, Griselda salvaged what was left of her old business. While she was focused on enemies within, Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel had grown so big Griselda could never dream of rivaling it. This was actually a good thing for Griselda. Since Pablo no longer considered Griselda a threat, they were able to set their rivalry aside and started working together again. This time, it was Griselda piggybacking off of Pablo's infrastructure. She bought drugs from his suppliers and used his planes for smuggling. Soon, she was turning a profit again. Within months of Alberto's death, Griselda married husband number three, a simple bank robber named Dario Sepulveda. Dario was the brother of one of Griselda's favorite hitmen, Paco Sepulveda. Griselda and Dario hit it off instantly after Paco introduced them. He was handsome and ruthless. Associates remember Griselda and Dario bickering about which one of them was the better killer. Most importantly, Dario didn't have any ambitions to take over her business. With Griselda squarely in charge, her cocaine trafficking ring was running better than ever. In August 1978, Griselda and Dario welcomed a son, Michael Corleone Blanco. The Godfather was Griselda's favorite movie. By now, Griselda was 35 years old. Her three older sons were growing up too. Dixon was 16, Uber was 14, and Osvaldo was 10. Dixon was starting to show interest in the family business. He wanted to be a smuggler and enforcer one day, which pleased his mother to no end. But of course, she told him he couldn't officially join the ranks until he was an adult. By late 1978, Griselda decided it was time to head back to the U.S. Things were going well in Colombia, but her distribution wasn't growing fast enough. The problem, of course, was that she was still a wanted fugitive. Griselda had fake Venezuelan passports drawn up for herself, her husband, and her children. 
they set off to Miami, Florida, the cocaine capital of the United States. This was a new move for Griselda, who'd previously been focusing on New York City. But in the past few years, Miami had become a major access point for drug smugglers. It was close to Latin America, and it was an easy junction to other cities throughout the U.S. Griselda didn't worry about the DEA. She figured things had cooled down in the three years since her indictment. And with her fake passport in hand, she wasn't Griselda Blanco anymore. She was just a simple Venezuelan businesswoman looking for a new start with her family. She didn't realize how right she was. She was no longer Griselda Blanco, the feared cocaine godmother. Everyone had forgotten her. The name on everyone's lips was Pablo Escobar. The Medellin cartel owned Miami. And up here, nobody knew Griselda was the one who'd given Pablo his start. On the one hand, this anonymity was a good thing, as it meant she was flying under the DEA's radar. On the other, it was terrible for business. Griselda spent months scraping by, trying to make new connections, but nobody wanted to work with a distributor they didn't know. And frankly, most people in this business didn't respect a woman in power anyway. The fact that she was still the number one target on the DEA's watch list didn't mean anything to these people. Everywhere she went, she heard Pablo Escobar's name. It was like a nightmare she couldn't escape from. As hard as she tried, she was relegated to a place as a mid-level distributor, moving Medellin coke like a common smuggler. She had experience, money, property, and a close team of associates. All she needed was a little name recognition. She just didn't know how to get it. Lonely and desperate, Griselda started dipping into her own product. She'd done it once or twice before, but now that she was in Miami, she found herself taking little bumps of cocaine more and more often. She thought it might help give her some ideas. Then it hit her. The answer to all of her problems was violence and murder. Everyone respected Pablo Escobar because he didn't give them a choice. He killed anyone who tried to cross him. Historically, killing people had worked out pretty well in solving Griselda's personal problems. Maybe it could solve her professional problems, too. It was just like in her favorite movie, The Godfather. She had to be ruthless, like Michael Corleone. She could gain respect and recognition by wreaking havoc across Miami. Griselda made a list of every supplier who'd refused her, every dealer who'd cheated her, every buyer who owed her money. Then she ordered her hitmen to take them out. No questions asked, no second chances. The more violent, the better. The more witnesses, the better. Within the coming years, Griselda's operation reportedly killed over 200 people. Word spread fast that Griselda Blanco was not someone to mess with. Small and mid-level traffickers respected her. Pablo Escobar had too much on his plate to even notice her. The only negative attention was from the police, but Griselda took those setbacks as they came. Always the innovator, she invented a technique that would leave the cops behind in the dust. The motorcycle drive-by. The problem with traditional hits was that it was hard to get away from the scene of the crime, especially in Miami traffic. Unless they did it on a motorcycle. 
It'd be a simple two-man job, one driver and one gunman. They'd roll up to their target and open fire. They could zip away from the scene just as quickly as they arrived, weaving through lines of cars as the police got trapped in traffic. It worked like a charm. This became Griselda's go-to method of execution. But as her reputation grew, she started thinking of bigger and better ways to kill. In July of 1979, Griselda planned her most ambitious hit to date, one that would gain her infamy as one of the most violent drug lords in Miami history. The target was Herman Jimenez Peneso, one of Griselda's suppliers. Their partnership had gone smoothly for a few months, but recently they'd encountered two small problems. The first was that Jimenez was sleeping with the girlfriend of Paco Sepulveda, Griselda's brother-in-law and favorite hitman. This deeply upset Paco. The second problem was that Griselda owed Jimenez for 40 kilos of cocaine, and she didn't really want to pay up. There was, of course, a third motivation. Griselda could solidify her reputation as a lawless queenpin by taking out her own partner and friend in broad daylight. It was a hot July afternoon. A white delivery van pulled up to the curb of the Dadeland Mall in suburban Miami. The left side of the van was emblazoned with poorly stenciled red paint reading, Happy Time Complete Party Supply. The right side read, Happy Time Complete Supply Party. The van lingered for a while, the engine still running. Nobody paid it any attention. Jimenez and his bodyguard, Juan Carlos Hernandez, didn't even notice it as they walked by into the Crown Liquor Store. Jimenez asked the clerk if they had any Chivas Regal. The clerk pointed them to the shelf. Hernandez went over to grab the bottle while Jimenez fished for his wallet. Right outside the window, two men climbed out of the Happy Time van and barreled into the store, guns blazing. Jimenez and Hernandez were killed instantly. You'd think they'd be finished, but Griselda ordered for the execution to be as wild and attention-grabbing as possible. The men reloaded their guns and kept shooting, firing at everything and everyone in sight. After shooting through two 30-round clips, they walked back out into the parking lot, spraying bullets as they went. They were firing so indiscriminately, they accidentally shot out their own van's rearview mirror. They even shot at a teenage stock boy who'd taken shelter underneath a car. He screamed, why are they shooting at me? I didn't do anything. In less than three minutes, the shooters were gone. By the time the police arrived, all that was left was the happy time van, chock full of guns and ammunition. To Griselda, the hit was a success. She'd sent a message to the other drug lords in Miami. She was just as violent and unhinged as Pablo Escobar. She would do anything to get what she wanted. Up next, we'll explore Griselda's life at the top of Miami's drug game. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1984, Griselda Blanco was living large. It had been five years since she'd first arrived in Miami, and her drug ring was exploding. With nearly a 1,000 employees at her beck and call, 41-year-old Griselda had hit her peak, raking in $80 million a month. She had houses in Colombia, a luxury penthouse on Biscayne Bay in Miami, and a fleet of exotic cars. She spent millions on luxuries, including pearls that once belonged to Argentinian First Lady Ava Peron, a tea set owned by Queen Elizabeth, and a gold Mac-10 machine gun encrusted with emeralds. She took care of her loyal employees, too, buying them houses or cars for their birthdays. The disloyal employees she still rewarded with a spray of bullets. As Griselda's power grew, so did her violence. She attributed her recent success to her ruthless shootings and her new cocaine habit. Cocaine had inspired her to use violence as a publicity tactic in the first place. What had started out as an occasional bump to get the inspiration flowing soon grew into an addiction. Griselda specifically asked her suppliers for large amounts of unrefined cocaine paste, known as bazooka. It can be smoked from a cigarette or pipe, like crack, but is stronger and more addictive. And when Griselda got high her dark side became even darker. Griselda was openly bisexual, less than serious about her marital vows, and a huge fan of drug-fueled orgies. She threw the wildest parties, spending millions on drugs, drinks, and topless dancers. But of course, it's all fun and games until someone pulls out a gun. After smoking a bit too much bazooka, Griselda was known to force men and women to have sex with her at gunpoint. They all knew she wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. Sometimes she actually did. Griselda ended more than a few parties by executing the strippers she'd hired, just for the fun of it. Throughout the 1980s, Miami was called the murder capital of the U.S., averaging 500 homicides a year. Most of them were attributed to the so-called cocaine cowboys that had taken up residence in the city. An estimated 25% of bodies in the Dade County morgue had wounds from automatic gunfire. 15% of them had been killed in public. There were so many bodies, the Miami Medical Examiner's Office had to rent a refrigerated van from the local Burger King to house the overflow. This period of time became known as the Miami Drug Wars. Federal authorities estimated that by 1980, 
70% of all cocaine entering the U.S. passed through South Florida. And despite all the murder and mayhem, the drug trade was lucrative for everyone. According to the DEA, cocaine was the biggest industry in Miami, bringing in $12 billion per year. The biggest legitimate industry, real estate, only brought in $11 billion. With cocaine came jobs, not just for smugglers and drug dealers, but for waiters, salespeople, bankers, and construction workers. Someone had to cater to this influx of high-flying drug lords, so there were job openings all across Miami. Word spread to South and Central America about the work opportunities, and once they arrived, it was easy to entice recent immigrants to join the drug trade. Whoever wanted a job and could take orders, Griselda hired. Including her sons. By 1984, Dixon and Uber were in their 20s, and both had roles in their mother's drug distribution. At times, they even worked as hitmen. Osvaldo was a teenager at the time, but he was eager to get started as a distributor whenever he was old enough. Griselda was very protective in her own ways. If she didn't like one of her son's girlfriends, she'd have the girl and her entire family killed. If someone rebuffed her sons, they'd also be killed. The perfect guy for a job like this was Jorge Rivi Ayala. He was a ruthless killer who never hesitated at Griselda's orders, even as they became more and more brutal. As Griselda became more successful, maximum publicity was no longer her priority when it came to hits. That had worked for a while, but it also brought a little too much attention from the police. Instead, she now told her hitmen that every witness should be executed. It didn't matter if they were old or young, man or woman, innocent or guilty. If they saw something, they were done for. In one case, Reevee was required to kill a former associate who had somehow wronged Griselda's son, Osvaldo. The man's name was Jesus Castro. Reevee and another hitman pulled up beside Castro's car and began firing. They didn't realize that Castro's two-year-old son was in the car with him. Castro sped away uninjured, but then he realized that his two-year-old son had been shot in the head twice. He was dead. When Reevee went to tell Griselda the news, she was furious. They'd missed their target. Castro was still alive. But when she was told that the two-year-old was dead, she smiled. That was an even better act of revenge. She and Castro were even. In public, Griselda bragged about her kill count. But in private, it was starting to chew away at her conscience. She told her husband, Dario, she couldn't sleep alone at night. She had nightmares of the people she'd killed coming back as ghosts to torment her. When Dario was out of town, she had her maids and housekeepers sleep next to her so she could hold their hands through the night. If she was alone, she was too scared to sleep a wink. She should have been more worried about the people she hadn't killed. The escalating violence was too much for even the hitmen. It was one thing for Griselda to order an innocent child's death, but it was even more difficult to be the one pulling the trigger. 
And while Griselda's shoot-first, ask-questions-later mentality had earned her respect from rivals at first, in the long run, partners stopped working with her out of fear. Higher-ups in the Medellin cartel were starting to wonder if it was time to get rid of her. Dario even became worried about the well-being of their five-year-old son, Michael Corleone. Griselda's paranoia, violence, and drug use were putting him in constant danger. And by 1983, the FBI was swarming Miami on the regular in the hopes of clearing out the cartels. Griselda thought she was being careful. The whole point of her violent enforcement was to make sure no one dared to attack her or her children. Behind the gates of her mansion, protected by her German shepherd, which she'd named Hitler, Griselda thought she and her family were perfectly safe. Michael had just turned five, and Dario thought it was time to send him to school. But Griselda thought the best place for Michael was right there by her side, learning the drug trade from the inside out. By late 1983, Dario was tired of arguing. So he kidnapped Michael and took him back to Colombia. Griselda was in shock when she heard the news. She didn't even call Dario to yell at him or to reason with him. Her rage took over. She ordered her Colombian contacts to find Dario, kill him, and bring Michael back immediately. They found him on a suburban street in Medellin. Two of Griselda's hitmen, dressed as police officers, pulled over Dario's car and told him to get out. They started to cuff him, but then Dario took off running. The hitmen pulled their guns and shot Dario in the head. Five-year-old Michael was sitting in the back seat. He jumped out and ran to where his father had fallen. But by the time he got there, Dario was already dead. The hitmen pulled Michael away from his father and took him back to Miami. Griselda was glad to be reunited with her son. But Dario's family was immediately out for revenge, including his hitman brother, Paco. But if they wanted to kill Griselda, they'd have to get in line. She had so many enemies, her former in-laws didn't even register as a threat. Griselda's main cocaine supplier sided with Dario's family in the dispute, but she soon found a new supplier, Marta Saldariaga Ochoa, a cousin of the Ochoa brothers who co-founded the Medellin cartel. But after a few months, by early 1984, Griselda had racked up a $1.8 million debt to Marta. Instead of paying it, she took care of the problem the same way she'd taken care of her debt to Herman Jimenez. Marta's bullet-riddled body was found wrapped in plastic in a ravine outside Miami. This was a bad move. The Ochoa family used Marta's funeral to call for an end to the violence. They didn't pursue any revenge against Griselda. But to the rest of the Medellin cartel, there was only one way to end the bloodshed. It was now open season on Griselda Blanco. Griselda was cut out of the Medellin supply chain. There were rumors that a bounty was even placed on her head. She started to notice enemies patrolling the streets, waiting for an open shot. Sometimes when she was out shopping, she saw a face she recognized lurking in the corners. Jaime Bravo, the nephew of her second husband, Alberto. 
This wasn't just cocaine-fueled paranoia. Jaime actually was following her, set on revenge for her murders of both Alberto and his brother, Carlos. In the midst of her feuds with the Bravo family, the Sepulveda family, and the Ochoa family, the drug traffickers of Miami had realized that with Griselda around, everyone was in danger. Then there were the families of the people she'd executed. Hundreds of families around Miami could blame Griselda for the deaths of their children, parents, and siblings, and many of them were well-connected cartel or gang members. Griselda didn't realize just how many enemies she'd made in the process of climbing to the top. It was only a matter of time before it all came crashing down. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll explore Griselda Blanco's downfall, arrest, and murder. We'll also discuss her lasting influence on Colombia, Miami, and the cocaine trade. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Margot Perkins and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.